Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Well, this morning we come in Luke 16 and we come back to familiar faces, don't we? Once again, the Pharisees are on the scene. And we know that the Pharisees are opponents of Jesus and they are going to try and trip him up. They are going to try and attack him. They are going to misrepresent what he has said. They are going to try all they can to undermine his teaching. But I want you to think about another aspect of the Pharisees. You see, when we come to a text like this and we hear about the Pharisees, we really like them. We like reading about the Pharisees. Because after all, the Pharisees are really bad, aren't they? I mean, all that we're missing is a vivid description of a long waxed mustache and seeing them twirl it and give that kind of maniacal laugh. Right? And that's why we love them. Because it's easy to look at them and then to say to ourselves that we are so much better than they are. Lord, I'm glad you didn't make me a Pharisee. Then I would not listen to Jesus. And I would be a legalist. Legalism is something that is often bandied about in, in church circles. And what, what is legalism? Why is legalism bad? Well, you know, a good, short, working definition of legalism in the church in the 21st century is this. Anyone who is stricter in any form of behavior than I am. They're a legalist. You see, the wonderful part about that definition is we get to be perfect. We just look at someone else who's stricter and that's what a legalist is. But this text here this morning challenges that popular way of thinking, that way of thinking that even if it doesn't come out of our mouths, resides in our hearts. It's a way of thinking about legalism that makes us Teflon against it. But Jesus tells us that legalism is so much more than that. And in many ways, we are much more like the Pharisees than we would like to admit. And so this morning, I'd like us to look at what legalism really is and have us search our own hearts. Not that we might condemn ourselves, but that we might seek the Lord Jesus Christ, that he might root out from our hearts any vestiges of legalism. Well, what is legalism? At its 
core, we see here from the text that legalism is self-justification. It is justifying ourselves. Jesus says this exactly in verse 15. Do you see that? He says to the Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves before men. That's not a bad summary definition. That is an inspired word of God definition of legalism. So let's first think about what this tells us legalism is not. Legalism, first of all, is not believing in the law. Now, far too often in our modern day and age, the law is set up as a boogeyman. It is the black twin to the white shining armor of grace. We don't want to be under law. We want to be under grace. We don't want anything to do with law. We just want to have grace. But you see, this is not the reality of the situation, is it? We don't believe in law until someone steals our iPad. Or until our children rebel. Or until someone gossips against us. Then, very quickly, we come up with good concepts of law. Things that people shouldn't do. And we can go to the scriptures and rightfully prove that these are violations of God's law. But otherwise, especially when we are the actors, we want to say, oh no, we don't believe in standards or law. We're all under grace. You see, that is not legalism. The second thing that legalism is not is seeking to follow the law. There's nothing wrong with seeking to follow God's law. As a matter of fact, God tells us that's why he gave us his law. That we could follow after him. That we could do what he has commanded us to do. And so, there's nothing wrong with doing this. Could you imagine if that was legalism and we tried to fight against that in our homes? Parents, you say to your children, clean your room. No, I don't feel like it. But you need to do it or I will punish you. No, Dad, I'm under grace. I don't believe in law. It's 10 o'clock, it's bedtime. No, it isn't. Why are you getting all legalistic about bedtime? Let's be gracious. How about one or two or three? And you see how unworkable life would be if we had no category of law. So legalism is not just law bad, grace good. Legalism is also not being strict in our lives. You see, this is again the most fashionable form of legalism. It's the way that we, it's that nuclear weapon that we keep in our pocket for any argument about anything that has to do with Christian living. If we really need to get someone and win the debate, we simply look at them and we say, you know, I think you might be a legalist. And everything has to be dropped at that point. You see, if someone is stricter than us, they must be a legalism. It allows us to stay free from any taint of sin. Well, if that is not legalism, then what is legalism? It's important to understand this. What legalism is, first and foremost, is overvaluing ourselves. <coughs> we become the standard and the judge. What do I mean? Well, if I were to tell you, as your pastor, that the appropriate amount of time to pray each morning is 20 minutes... 
That is the right standard of praying. If you pay, pray 15 minutes, you are a slacker. Would you please listen to the voice of God? And if you pray 25 minutes, what are you, some kind of sanctimonious person? Are you a legalist about prayer? 20 minutes is the right time. How do you know? Because I tell you. And it might not surprise you to hear that oftentimes that means that I can pray for 20 minutes. It's the perfect standard for me. You see, that's what legalism is. It's taking our standards and making them God's standards. Legalism is also, as Jesus says here, seeking justification by law-keeping. That is, we do what we need to do. We can do exactly the amount of God's law that we need to to be right with God. That's what Jesus says to the Pharisees. You seek to justify yourselves. You have a tally of what you do, and it happens to be perfectly calculated to exactly lead to glory. We do what we do to put God in our debt. When we have prayed enough, when we have read enough Bible, when we have worn a certain clothing, when we have said certain things, when we have lived a certain way, then we put God in our debt. We are justified by our own actions and God owes us salvation. That is the very opposite of grace. It's not law. It's legalism. Legalism at its core is seeking to be God. We want to be the ones in control. We want to set the standards. And we will. And what winds up happening is that appearance becomes reality. You see what Jesus says here. You seek to justify yourselves. How? Before men. Because you see, if what I do is what merits me heaven... I have to be seen doing enough to merit me heaven. I need to let other people see it and know it. I need to do all of these things in a public way, in a way that others can see. Otherwise, they don't have any value. I don't get any value for praying in my closet. I don't get any value for giving in secret. All of my value is found in the external. And this describes the Pharisees, doesn't it? But it actually describes all of us, all the way up to our very first parents, Adam and Eve. They actually thought that if they put skins on their body, they wouldn't be naked and ashamed. And God wouldn't know the difference. It would cover up their sin. In the same way, the Pharisees' forebears in the Old Testament... They believed that if they just did the sacrifices that God described in His Word, if they just went through the steps, it didn't matter what their hearts were like, it didn't matter how they lived, as long as they publicly did the sacrifices. But it comes here to us too, doesn't it? When we think our standing is based on how much we do for church, how much we do for others, what our public persona is. Appearance can take on reality. And if we are not careful, that sin will delve into our heart and it will take control of our lives. We will do everything to be seen by others. We will set a standard that is a false standard. And Jesus says, when you do this, 
Not only are you doing the wrong things, you are in the whole wrong courtroom. It is as if you were going to answer for a speeding ticket and you found your way into family court thinking somehow you could talk to the judge who's dealing with adoptions and divorces that he should dismiss your ticket even though he has nothing to do with that. You see, we're in the wrong court because we are seeking the opinions of men. And this kind of pretending, pretending that we are someone that we are not, is vain. Because after all, God knows the reality of our hearts, doesn't he? Don't take my word for it. Take Jesus's. Look here at verse 15. God knows your hearts. Whatever you do in secret is not in secret from God. And so it is vain to try and set up an external structure that we will follow, hoping somehow to please God as if he will not notice. It's foolishness. It's like when you're at home with the children and you put them to bed. And about an hour after bedtime, after curfew time, you hear all kinds of noise and jumping from upstairs. And you make your way up the stairs and you see as you approach the room that the light is still on coming from underneath the door. And there's yelling and screaming. And you step and a stair creaks. Or you trip over one of the unkempt toys. And then all of a sudden you hear, and the lights go off. And you go up to the door of the room and you open the door and the children are all under the covers up to their neck, sleeping thus. And you say, kids, what's going on here? And they say, why did you wake us up? We've been asleep for hours. We're so tired. You're not fooling anyone. I heard what I heard. I saw what I saw. You can't pretend. That's what we are like when we try and fool God. We're acting like young children who don't understand the reality of the world. There's another interesting thing about legalism. Because you see, so often we think of legalism as something that is so strict. It wants us to do things far beyond our abilities. The problem with legalism is that it actually lessens the law of God. Now you say, wait a minute, pastor, you've been to seminary. Are you sure about this? I thought legalism was too much law. Now you're telling me it's too little law? Yes, it actually is. It's a lowering of standards. What sets off this whole discussion in verse 14? Jesus has been challenging his disciples about a very sensitive topic. What to do with their money. And he's given them very strict guidelines. He's not given them leeway. Spend money on whatever you want to spend money on. Go ahead. Be under grace. Blow money on whatever you need. Right? Be a servant to mammon. It doesn't matter as long as you're under grace. I don't find that in chapter 16. Do you? Interestingly, the Pharisees have great difficulty with Jesus. But they don't accuse Jesus of being too lax, of being too soft on sin. Now, they're not afraid to do that, are they? They just did that previously. 
You remember when they accused him of eating with sinners and tax collectors? He was being too soft on sin. Now here they go in the opposite direction. They are ridiculing him. They are making fun of him. They are mocking Jesus for being too strict. You see, they're sitting there. This is, now remember, this is the Pharisees. And they look at Jesus and they say, why do you have to be so uptight about the law? What's the big deal with money? We love money. We're godly. Why do you have to be such a legalist, Jesus? They might even throw at him. You see, the reality is, is that this goes back to serving one of two masters. And if we don't love Jesus ultimately, if he is not our greatest treasure and prize, then we must love something else more. So think about this. What are you tempted to love more than Jesus? Is it football? Is it your job? Is it money? Is it relationships? Is it your reputation? If we do not love Jesus ultimately, you have to put something else in front of him. You cannot serve two masters, Jesus has told us. And as we look at this, we ought not to stand objectively and look and point at the Pharisees. That's not the point of Jesus' saying here. Jesus wants us to look at ourselves and what we put up as a standard. You see, this was a theological battle that the Pharisees were fighting. It was not just that they liked money. They did. Jesus tells us so. But they actually saw money as a sign of blessing and godliness. Just like each year Forbes puts out that magazine with the 50 wealthiest people in the world, the Pharisees had the 50 godliest people in the world. And you know what? The lists were the same. Because if you were a member of the church, if you were a part of the covenant people of Israel, and you had a lot of money, that meant God liked you a lot. He was blessing you. It was a one-to-one ratio. And so you see, they're battling with Jesus about his theology. They're saying, we know we're godly. Look at our pocketbooks. We know we're godly. Did you see my house? We know we're godly. Have you seen my cart and my donkeys? And then the irony here is they look at Jesus, the one who doesn't have a home to lay his head in, the one who doesn't have riches and wealth. And they look at him and they say, you're poor. How could you possibly be godly? Why would we listen to you? You see, that's legalism. Think of the irony there. They are judging God by their own standard. And he doesn't measure up because of their standard. This is a central part of legalism. This lessening of the law. It's not a byproduct. It's not collateral damage. You see, if we think through this logically, if we are right with God by keeping the law, what should be rule number one? Make sure the law is able to be kept. Right? Because if I can't keep the law, then I'm not right with God. So if I want to judge myself by the law, I had better make the law such that I could keep it. You know, this reminds me of when I was younger, my boy's age, 
And there was a wonderful NBA player, perhaps some of you remember, or old enough, by the name of Spud Webb. And the interesting thing about Spud Webb was that he was shorter than me. But he could dunk the basketball. Now, this was exhilarating and thrilling. I could, could you just imagine what it would be like to dunk? If you could leap like that? Now, for some of us, we think, well, we're not six foot ten. How could we possibly do this? We can't jump like Spud Webb. How can we possibly do this? And there's an answer. I'll let you in on it. What you do is you just take a ten-foot rim and you make it six and a half feet. And then you could do all kinds of fancy dunks. Behind the back, spinning 360. All you have to do is change the standard. And you could do it all day long. You see, that's what the Pharisees did. They weren't trying to make the law higher. They were trying to bring the law down lower to where it was easy and able to be kept. They didn't understand the breadth of the law. You see, the law goes beyond the physical to the spiritual. It, are, it is the commands of God and all of the prohibitions of God. When something is sin, it is always sin. You can't have something be sin in California and not sin in Texas. You can't have something be sin in the morning and not be sin in the evening. Something is sin. It is sin all the time for all peoples. And you see, the tendency that we have is to try and define what the law is. Therefore, we define what sin is. Therefore, we avoid sinning. And it becomes all about the show. We're able to keep these laws. That's what the Pharisees do. They say, I have never ever broken the sixth commandment. Really? I have never hit anyone in the head with a baseball bat. Ever. Never shot anyone and never stabbed anyone. I've never broken the sixth commandment. And then Jesus comes to them in the Sermon on the Mount and he says, but have you ever been angry in your heart unjustly? Ooh. I have never broken the seventh commandment. I am always and unequivocally faithful to my spouse. Really? Never cast a sideways glance. Never watch something on television you weren't supposed to watch. Never surf the internet in a place where you weren't supposed to be. You see, Jesus shows us that the law is so broad that any hope that we have of keeping it is complete folly. We cannot redefine God's law. We will look at this a little bit more in depth next week when we look at the next verse, verse 18, on the subject of marriage and divorce. But just to give you an idea of how we can so easily shrink the law without even thinking about it, take an easy commandment, the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Seems pretty easy. We just don't swear. And we especially don't swear by using God's name. And the most difficult thing we will have to do is those occasions where we hit our thumb with a hammer. That's all we need to manage, right? Let me give you an idea of how our forebearers defined this commandment from the scope of Scripture. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, there are two questions dealing with the third commandment. The first is, what is required in the third commandment? The third commandment requires that the name of God, his titles, attributes, ordinances, the word, sacraments, prayer, oaths, vows, lots, his works, and whatsoever else there is whereby he makes himself known, 
be holily and reverently used in thought, meditation, word, and writing. By a holy profession, answerable conversation to the glory of God and the good of ourselves and others. Uh, We're not halfway there yet. What are the sins forbidden in the third commandment? The sins forbidden in the third commandment are the not using of God's name as is required and the abuse of it as ignorant, vain, irreverent, profane, superstitious, or wicked mentionings or otherwise using his titles, attributes, ordinances, or works by blasphemy, perjury, sinful cursings, oaths, vows, and lots. Violating our oaths and vows, if lawful, and fulfilling them, if unlawful. Murmuring and quarreling at, curious prying into, misapplying of God's decrees and providences, misinterpreting, misapplying, or any way perverting the word or any part of it. To profane jests, curious or unprofitable questions, vain janglings, or the maintaining of false doctrines, abusing it, the creatures, or anything contained under the name of God, to charms or sinful lusts and practices, the maligning, scorning, reviling, or anywise opposing of God's truth, grace, and ways, making profession of religion in hypocrisy, or for sinister ends, being ashamed of it or ashamed to it, by unconformable, unwise, unfruitful, and offensive walking or black sliding from it. I'm tired just saying that. Could you imagine trying to do that for a year? For a month? For a day? You see, God's law is broad. And it will not help us to try and shrink the size of God's law. The reality is, is that we, if we fall prey to legalism, it becomes an incubator for sin in our lives. We are not only critical of those who fall short of our standards, we're also critical of those who ask more of us. That's exactly what they are doing to Jesus here. They are ridiculing him because he is affecting their way of life. The minute that I say, part of your Christian duty is to be with God's people in the gathered worship. And you have something else you'd rather do. I'm infringing on your lifestyle, aren't I? And then you will come up with all sorts of self-justifications. Well, but I already did this. Oh, well, but no, what about that? You see, legalism cuts both ways. It allows us to make excuses for our actions. You see, what happens when we decide what is sin? The answer is we get comfortable in our sin. We've decided that it's okay to do something. And so we go ahead and do it. When we define gossip not to include gossip that the last sentence is, please pray. We've just changed the standard. When we look around and we see others doing the same sorts of sins, we are encouraged and we are encouraged to make it our own standard. This is why, for a very long period of time, millions and millions and millions of people in America, including millions of Christians, decided it was not a sin to steal from companies who made music by downloading electronic music that they did not pay for because, quote, They got enough money anyway. Quote, everybody's doing it. It allows us to excuse our own sin. Do you see how insidious legalism is? Legalism actually encourages you to sin. It's not about being uptight. 
And the problem is the man-made standard that we put together is not just different from God's standard. Look at what Jesus says. For what is exalted among men is an abomination to the Lord our God. It's because it's idolatry. We set ourselves up as God. It robs God of His majesty and His sovereignty. But none of this is the worst thing about legalism. The worst thing about legalism is that it misses the gospel. You see, the law is about God. If God is God, then He is sovereign, isn't He? Or else He's not God. Do you believe that God is the Creator? Do you believe that God is the Redeemer? Do you believe that God is able to help you when you need help through the power of prayer? Then He must be in control. Even over the law. That means you can't be. You can't set the standards. You see, the law is an expression of the character of God. There is no external standard that God conforms to. There is no theoretical idea of good. And God conforms to it. Something is good because God is good. And He declares it so. How do we know what the truth is? Because God is truth. Why do we know it's wrong to murder? Because God is life. God is the one who sets the standard. His character is eternal and unchanging, and so His law is eternal and unchanging. This is what Jesus means in verse 17. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. How could the law pass away? God would have to cease to be God. Not the smallest part of God's law will pass away. And Jesus is challenging us here for our own legalism. Because you see, if we search our hearts, there are parts of the law that we want to pass away. Isn't that true? When we are really frustrated with our children, don't we really wish that part of God's word that says, Fathers, don't exasperate your children, would just go poof. When our husband is being a real pain, don't you just wish that passage that said, Wives, submit to your husbands, as the church does to Christ, would just go poof? Right? I know there are plenty of kids here that wish... Submit to your parents or honor your father and mother would have sort of a, a time expiration limit on it. Right? But that's not the character of God. And you see, the reality is legalism is dangerous because it hides from us that we need God's law. You see, this is the foolishness of the world that we need to be built up in self-esteem and we don't need to ever be told when we've ever done anything wrong. But you see, the reality is the first part of the gospel is to know we are sinners, isn't it? Take, for example, perhaps one of the most famous passages on the gospel, Romans chapter 3. It begins in verse 23, thusly. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then it moves on to, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Before we get to grace, we have to understand we need grace. Before we get to our need for Christ, we have to understand our need for sin. Before we can truly understand God's grace, we have to understand how much we need it. When we're at the end of our rope, when we know we can't do it ourselves, no matter how hard we try, we are lost. Before we can know that the Father sent Jesus Christ to be an atonement for our sins, we have to understand what sin is and that sinning includes us. And we can't arbitrarily define away our sins. There's a third and final part here to legalism misunderstanding the gospel. And what it does is it hides from us the knowledge that we must give it all to Jesus. You see, this is what's behind this very difficult verse here in Luke, verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. This sounds kind of like God is standing at the gates of heaven, blocking it off, and somehow we either have to force our way through or sneak around or jump over. But that's not what Jesus means. You see, what he's saying here is, up until John announced the coming of Jesus in the kingdom, the emphasis was on the law and the prophets. The emphasis was on you need saving and a savior is coming. That makes sense because Jesus had not come yet. But once Jesus has come, the emphasis is turned around. It is the savior is here. And so now, now the emphasis is upon the gospel. John is the first, and what is his message? Repent and receive reconciliation and salvation. You heard about the standard, now Jesus is here to keep the standard. And what that means is we must seize the kingdom. What Jesus is saying here is that now, right now in your life is the time for striving. You must go to extraordinary lengths in the pursuit of the gospel. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ no matter what stands in the way. Your wife, your girlfriend, your parents, your children, your job, your reputation, your 401k, no matter what stands in the way, you must push past it. You must be violent. You must seize Jesus and the gospel for that is your only hope. All of those other things will pass away. And Jesus says you must seize upon it. Now is the time for striving and to let God be God. Let Him have the standards. Let Him have the sovereignty. And strive after the gospel. Think about what we've seen here even in the gospel of Luke. Remember the paralyzed man? How they opened up the roof so that they could get him to Jesus? Do you remember the woman who was bleeding? How she fought through the crowds just to touch Jesus' garment. Is that how you strive for Jesus? To get Him. To gain Him. We need to get it through our heads that we need to stop trying 
to make things easy. Jesus never said the gospel was easy. He said it was free. We need to strive with so many forces, including our own hearts, seeking to drag us down. We need to accept that we cannot do enough to merit God's favor. But there's good news. Jesus can. And that, my friends, is enough for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed our own hearts to us by your word. Our own sinful tendencies, our own desires to be in charge. And we ask, O Lord, that you would bless us. That you would show us your sovereignty, your law, and the forgiveness that is found in your grace. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.